Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, it is obvious that COVID-19 and our response to it is having a devastating impact on the world economy. And perhaps the biggest impact is going to be the rising rich-poor gap, with the poor finding themselves deeper and deeper in debt, and the rich coming out of all of this better off than they went into it, particularly if they're holding lots of shares. So why is this happening? And is it time to revisit the idea of a debt moratorium? Well, we'll talk to two people who think that, yes, the time is right. One is Steve Keen, of course. After all, this is his podcast. Uh, And the other one is Michael Hudson joining us today. And I'm Phil Dobby, and this is the Debunking Economics podcast. Welcome along. So Steve has, of course, been talking about a modern-day debt jubilee for for some time now. We've talked about it on the uh, podcast before, but actually not for quite some time. And with COVID-19 changing just about everything in our lives, perhaps it is time to revisit the idea. And who better to talk about it with us than uh, Michael Hudson, Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And he's also the author of the book, uh, many books, uh, including Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Bondage Destroy the Global economy now that is a title that says it all <laughs> isn't it uh now look michael when you when you talk of debt uh, particularly right now people's thoughts tend to go don't they really to public sector debt because you know we've had all this money that's been uh, racked up paying for furloughing schemes and the like and the main topic of conversation certainly in the uk and i'm sure it's the same in the united states and around the world how do we pay all of this back it's not concerns over private or household debt Uh, It's the question about how do we get government gross debt, which at the end of October was 107% of GDP in the UK. Uh, Every day the the media is asking, how do we pay that back? That is more in the mindset of people uh, than debts that individuals are carrying, isn't it? Well, this is the result of a lot of propaganda. Uh, The point is that government debt doesn't have to be paid back. Mm. Uh, it's not supposed to be normally because if you pay it back, uh, uh, then you destroy uh, the money supply. And also the government uh, simply uh, won't pay. When the United States runs a deficit, uh, usually uh, foreign central banks end up holding it. And the U.S. says, well, you know, we we can just write our IOUs. And uh, imagine if individuals could go to the store and you'd pay for your groceries by writing an IOU and uh, buy cars and buy things as IOUs and say, well, you can just uh, use my IOUs to pay among yourselves and uh, use it as money. Mm. Well, obviously, uh, everybody would uh, be in a much happier world that way, but that's not how it happens. The private IOUs have to get paid, uh, and uh, they have to get paid by somehow uh, either uh, earning the money or more often losing your home or losing your assets. Yeah. uh, to pay, but governments can simply print the money. So government debt can never in, uh, run a risk of non-payment as long as it's in its own currency. So this uh, this is the idea behind modern monetary theory, isn't it? But it's, for some reason, it just hasn't got traction. I mean, there's a, a lot of people talking about it, and yet governments and banks the world over seem to ignore it. Uh, that's because a condition of being appointed to a, a central bank and a government is uh, you're working for the financial interests, for the banks, not for the government. Right. The banks would love governments to borrow from the banks in the financial sector and pay them interest because that's uh, uh, then they get to tell the government what to do. Uh, and if right. the government can just print its own money, then it can decide what uh, voters want it to do. And, of course, that would be democracy. And uh, that is not exactly what uh, the vested interests are for. But, but, it's, but it's also the accounting. And this is, this is the thing which I mean, I've got to take my hat off to Stephanie Kelton for making a bestseller out of an argument over it, which is fundamentally issues of accounting. Because uh, when you take a look at how the government actually creates money right now, uh, it... It creates it by simply running a deficit. 
And when it creates a deficit, what it does, it spends into the public sector, let's say the private sector, spends into people's bank accounts. And when you spend into people's bank accounts, of course, you increase the amount of money in their bank accounts. When you tax, you do the opposite. You take money out of their bank accounts. Now, when you spend to put money in somebody's bank account, you have to deposit it in, in their account, and which is on the liability side of the banking sector's balance sheet. And then that is shown as an increase in the reserves on the asset side of the bank's balance sheet. So the gap between the spending which creates money and tax which destroys it, first of all, adds money to the deposit accounts, which is on the liability side of the banking sector. And secondly, at the same time, it has to add to the reserves. And those, so, so the increase in, in money is created by the deficit which is what we get in our bank accounts. But the increase in reserves is also created in exactly the same act, and that gives banks reserves which either don't earn interest or in some crazy countries like Switzerland actually give you a negative rate of interest. So that's where the money is created mm. by running a deficit. And when it comes to what the, so the government debt, that's the government issuing bonds to cover the gap, cover the deficit. But what that means is for the, for the private banks that are being offered, do you want to hold your money in an account which, which reserves at the central bank that earn you zero interest or even worse negative or would you like to buy these treasury bonds office that earn you one percent or two percent interest per annum i'll take the treasury bonds thanks very much so now for a now, while though they, they didn't issue uh, bonds the, the the bank of england actually just allowed the uh, the, the uk treasury i mean the intention mm-hmm. was that it would be issued as, bo- as bonds down the track yeah. but it was a sort of like a short-term reaction to the yeah, crisis COVID, yeah was, we'll, we'll just we'll just let you run an overdraft yeah. in and, effect and, and in your that, in your in yeah, bank. And that, and that effectively is what the bonds actually do, because normally when the government when the government spends, it's effectively creating negative equity for itself, which creates positive equity for the rest of society. And this, I'm looking at a set of double entry balance uh, book sheets here to, to, to make this argument. So that's a bit airy fairy for anybody hearing just the verbal side of things. But when the government spends more than it gets back in taxation, it wears that on its overall, uh, with the government assets and government uh, liabilities. Now, one of the government assets, of course, is its bank account at the central bank. And if the government didn't issue bonds, and if out of that account the government spent more than it got back in taxation indefinitely, it would end up with a negative balance in its deposit account. Now, lots of us in in the private sector end up with that as well. That's called an overdraft. So overdrafts are a yeah. common structure in, in private banking. And if the government didn't issue bonds, it would have an overdraft account at the central bank. So when it issues bonds, and normally it issues bonds proactively, it knows that it's got to, it, it knows it's got a rough estimate of what its deficit's going to be. So it sells bonds before it incurs the deficit. But it's driven by the deficit. So when it issues those bonds, it's fundamentally saying, we're going to sell these bonds to the private banks. They're going to buy it with money which was reserves, which were created by the deficit in the first place. And when we then pay that money into our treasury account at the central bank, it can maintain a positive or non-negative balance. And we will end up with negative equity if we work out our overall sums, but nobody ever tries to work out what's the equity of the you know, American economy or the British economy. Um, so it's a way of the government running a negative equity so that the rest of us can have a positive equity. And the bonds themselves just mean that that means that rather than that negative equity turning up as an overdraft bank account at the central bank, it turns up as a, 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 a debt that the... Uh, that the government notionally owes to the rest of the economy, but that debt is an asset to the private sector. And there's an ex- excellent blog by mm. Richard Murphy, who I must mention this, with runs taxresearch.org.uk in the, uh, in, the U- in the UK, saying, well, what would happen if we tried to pay all that debt back? Well, we'd eliminate all the treasury bonds that are currently held by pension funds. So we'd drop the income of pensions. Does that sound like a good idea? And he went through each of the particular ways in which this debt is used and said, getting rid of any of this is a bad idea because the private sector is benefiting from the cash flows generated by this well, uh, by these assets. So there we are. That was going to be my next question for Michael, actually. Uh, nicely uh-huh. led into. Thanks for that. The fact that if you look <laughs> into uh, the, the, the UK budget accounts, so sorry, I'm in the UK, so I'm looking more at the UK figures perhaps than the US figures, Michael, but it's, it's the same the world over. Uh, the, the amount of money that, that, that is spent on paying the supposed interest on the on these bonds goes into the uh, into the government accounts and it's it's roughly an, an amount of money that is 
pretty much the equivalent of how much Britain spends on defence or education each year. It's, it's a slug of money. So that's why people are fearful of this, because this is interest payments paid for uh, bonds that have, have been issued, and everyone is fearful that that, that, in, that is going to increase. But do we need to issue uh, bonds? Could we just, do, I mean, could we just do without them? Could it just be an overdraft uh, with a very low interest rate and, and just uh, avoid the, uh, the issuing of government bonds altogether? Well, I want to uh, make sure that uh, we don't fall into uh, uh, a misunderstanding. Uh, when Steve uses the word us, uh, it's as if the government runs a deficit to us. Uh, mm. Well, he, he, he also made it very clear that it's not the us uh, that gets the government money. The government uh, runs, it, runs a deficit. The government uh, money helicopter only flies over Wall Street. It creates money for the banks. So uh, and the banks basically provide money to the rest of the uh, to real estate and to the financial sector, uh, not to the economy at large. So you can say that the government runs a deficit by running, uh, uh, putting money into the economy. But there are two ways of, of doing this. One is to put money into the banking sector, in which case you can uh, uh, you have quantitative easing, you inflate asset prices, you raise the price of uh, real estate or at least of loans to real estate. You raise stock and bond prices, or the government can uh, run a deficit by actually doing real physical spending into the economy by building infrastructure, by doing social spending. And there's all the difference in the world between whether the government spends a, a deficit on the fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate, or whether it does it on, on the real economy. And, uh, and for the last uh, 12, 12 years, since 2008, the government's been spending money on the financial sector, mm. not into the reals, into the real but economy. It has changed a bit this year, though, hasn't it? Because we have seen money being paid, you know, furloughing workers uh, in the United States, that money that was paid into everyone's bank account. OK, it, would be, it only happened once, I think, didn't it? But at least, you know, that was money that was being thrown into to where it was needed rather than into the finance uh, sector. Not, well, here's what happened. Uh, the CARES Act to President Trump gave everybody $1,200. Uh, the $1,200 for most people was paid into their bank account or their credit card account. So what happened? Uh, the More than half of the CARES money was spent on paying down the uh, debts owed mm. by the companies and the banks. It wasn't spent on goods and services. Uh, the, uh, the people got a credit in the bank account, but the bank immediately uh, uh, used that for uh, uh, writing down the debt so that what uh, you did by giving... $1,200 to everybody was to defer their uh, falling further behind in their credit card account, further behind in their bank account uh, uh, in overdraft. And uh, uh, you enabled them to avoid being even deeper in debt, but not that much was spent on goods and services. And you can see that from uh, the statistics on retail sales and, yeah. uh, and what, was, what was happening. Yeah, well, I mean, that's been the interesting thing, isn't it, that we've actually seen, uh, you know, a, a, an increase in savings uh, for, for a large part of the economy. We've got this K-shaped curve where we've got people who've got money, have been saving money, uh, people on lower incomes, they're the ones who, who've been struggling through this whole thing. In fact, in fact there's evidence that they have uh, reduced their savings and resorted to borrowing more than usual. The, the Resolution Foundation found 54% of adults, in fact, Families from the lowest income, uh, the, the, the fifth quartile, the lowest fifth quartile, uh, fifth quartile, the lowest fifth of the population, borrowed more in March to June to cover everyday costs like food and housing. Uh, whereas, obviously, you know, in, in other parts of the economy, the, the upward shape of the K, there, there were lots of people within forced savings. They weren't able to, uh, uh, to to spend the money that they did have. So well, that shows that, you know, maybe more of that was needed. It wasn't anything wrong with putting money into people's bank accounts. So it just needed to happen more often. The helicopter needed to fly more frequently, didn't it? Well, that's what a K-shaped curve means. The, the, uh, the K-shaped curve, the 1% at the top that's doing the savings, uh, what are these savings invested in? They're loans to the 99%. So uh, the 1% gets richer by lending its savings out to the 99%, borrowing at 0.1% for government and charging uh, credit card people 29%. It's a win-win game. Of course, there's a K-shaped curve. Of course, the rich are getting richer, and their savings are other people's debts on the opposite side of the balance sheet. But just uh, but the balance sheet is uh, the 1% on the one hand with the assets and uh, the 99% with the liabilities. That's what the economy is looking like. So is it just is it just that 1% that's been gaining through all of this then? I mean, or no, that's 10%. 
I'm using the sort of Wall Street. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, but if but if, but you know, surely we're also seeing there is more money being paid by the government into broader sections of the economy than there's ever been before. I mean, they've always obviously taken money away through tax. The just the the notion that in the United States you would have twelve hundred dollars paid into people's bank accounts. Okay, a lot of it was paid off. You used to pay off debt, and it it deferred. Uh, what was a, a bad situation, but it's a it's a step in the right direction. And if they repeatedly did that, then those debts would be paid off, uh, and people would be uh, that would, that would up spending presumably. But the reality yeah. is, there's been an enormous increase in debt because of the COVID crisis. Yeah. Uh, so many people, uh, what is it, twenty million people, are, have lost their jobs. Uh, they are unable to pay the rents. The restaurants mm. uh, are not able to do business, so they haven't paid their commercial rents. Uh, their whole swaths of the economy uh, not only have not paid their rents, but they haven't paid uh, the taxes and they haven't paid their uh, credit cards and their bank accounts. Now, uh, in on January 1st, all of a sudden, the moratorium on evictions is going to be over. Yep. And they've estimated 5 million Americans will be thrown onto the street. Uh, the landlords have already been filling out the eviction notices for 5 million Americans. So the Biden administration is going to uh, begin right where the Obama administration left off. Obama threw 10 million families, mainly blacks and Hispanics, out of their homes by uh, uh, enforcing the junk mortgages of the banks, bailing out the banks, not writing down the debts uh, and the junk mortgages that uh, to the uh, victimized uh, uh, low-income uh, borrowers. Well, uh, just, uh, just as uh, Obama kicked 10 million families out, Biden's going to begin in the first week, kick, kick 5 million more families out. I mean, this is, this is going to put the class war uh, back in business in, a, in an even more vicious way than Obama was able to do. So how do you fix that situation then? If you've got people who have got uh, mortgages that have turned sour, I mean, the natural tendency from the government obviously is to say, oh, this is bad for the banks because they're going to lose out on, uh, on all this money from these, uh, from these mortgages. So we better bail out the banks without necessarily thinking about the people who are being turfed out of their houses at the same time. So you've almost got to hit both sides. I mean, you've got to, you don't want the bank to collapse, but also you don't want people on the streets. There are numerous ways of handling it. Uh, the, the Germans handled it by uh, paying about 80% of uh, people's uh, uh, income to them when they're uh, not at work or when they can't go into work. Mm. Uh, the way uh, that ancient society handled it was very simple. You'd have a moratorium on both on all ends of the financial process, a moratorium on rent, a moratorium on debt service, uh, and a moratorium on what the banks uh, uh, had right down the line what the banks had to do. This is what was literally written into the uh, the or original document calling for the Act of God clause. And that was in Hammurabi's laws in 1750 BC. Hammurabi said that if there is a flood or a drought or a disease, that uh, the rents didn't have to be paid, the taxes didn't have to be paid, there was a tax holiday. Uh, and uh, uh, they, they were canceled out. Otherwise, you'd have people losing their land, uh, and all the land uh, and homesteads would have been concentrated in the hands of a few wealthy uh, creditors. Uh, otherwise, you'd have a polarization, and society would have uh, fallen apart. So uh, you, you already had 4,000 years ago uh, a plan to suspend payments uh, at times when obviously the payments can't be made. And if you do insist in the rents being paid, then you're going to evict 5 million families and uh, the, the restaurants will go out of business permanently. And all the uh, gyms and the other uh, businesses that have mm. closed down since March uh, and have not been able to make an income, obviously are not going to say, okay, now we're going to reopen uh, in January, but we have to somehow pay uh, the last nine months rent. And if we do that, uh, we'll never have a profit for the next five years. We're just going to go out of business and close down. Well, the thing, the thing that's yeah. interesting about that uh, historical example, Michael, is that you had a, a reason the rulers had to find had to give a bias towards the the mass of the population because if you hadn't uh, enabled people not to pay those rents and not to pay the the uh, the debts they had they wouldn't have been a, they would have been become uh, uh, debt slaves and they therefore couldn't have been part of the army and couldn't have defended the empire so that gave the ancient civilizations a reason to do a a, a, a debt 
to, to revise debt, to do a debt jubilee that benefited the mass of the population. But what we have now is a world where the same thing would, would actually apply if the powers that would be the Obamas, the Bidens, even the Trumps, realise that. But the whole thing has been turned in favour of the finance sector. And every time there's a crisis in capitalism, the behaviour of the uh, the governing groups is to say, oh, we can't have the finance sector collapse. How do we rescue the finance sector? Mm. When, as you see your beautiful phrase, that's rescuing parasite and rescuing the host. But if you've got a, if you have some form of debt jubilee, if you say, well, okay, there's so many people in debt now, we've got to have some sort of moratorium. They're in debt to somebody. Uh, so if 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 you were in debt to me, uh, and you know, and the government was to say, "Well, you're not going to pay me back," I'd want the government to pay me. Uh, you know, it, it has to work that way. And the problem is, of course, normally the person you're in debt to is a bank, which is why banks say, "Well, okay, if you're going to write this debt off, someone's got to pay us for the debt that you want to you want to write off." Which is why we well, we get to the yeah, situation well, where you're bailing out the banks. This is where it's worth actually chat about Michael's version of a jubilee versus mine. So, Michael, you want to take the lead? Well, the virtue of canceling the debts is that you also cancel somebody's savings. And the uh, Babylonian rulers and the Byzantine rulers 2,000 years later said, look, we, we don't want a financial class to gain the power because if they gain uh, the wealth, they're going to hire an army and they're going to overthrow us and put in their own government uh, instead of, a, uh, you know, our government that's looking uh, – uh, for the people. And the advantage of uh, canceling the debts is you can, on the liability side of the balance sheet is you cancel the debts on the asset side. And these are the debts of the 1% or let's say the 10%. All of the growth since uh, 2008, for 12 years, all of the growth and wealth is accrued to this 10%. If you do not write down the savings that they have, you're going to create, you're going to make them into an almost feudal type uh, landlord or finance lord aristocracy that's going to impose uh, uh, an oligarchy here. Uh, so if you don't want an oligarchy, you have to write down not only the debts, but you have to write down these enormous uh, overgrowth of savings that uh, is what's holding the debtors in bondage. So you'd say anybody who has any debt whatsoever, that debt, that debt gets written off. So if, I've, if I owe my bank my mortgage few hundred thousand pounds i could uh, i just say i would i would just not owe that money to the bank anymore is that what we're saying well not not, not quite uh, that's what uh, uh, a mistake that the spartan kings aegis and cleomenus did in the three uh, third century bc if you were to wipe down all the debts just by itself you'd make the landlords you'd make the donald trumps of the world uh the richest uh, people uh the the old landlord class because most of them have very low equity uh, it's all debt, and all of a sudden you'd give them all this property mm. without owing any debt. So uh, you would have to uh, have a debt cancellation go hand in hand with a, a, a tax on uh, either either you'd have a tax on the real estate so that they would pay to the government what they previously paid to the banks in uh, interest. They'd pay the government a rent tax, or you'd do what happened in uh, the Soviet Union when it. Uh, uh, dissolved. You'd give everybody their own houses. Uh, all the occupants of any uh, uh, business or home would would get their own home. But instead of paying uh, the mortgage to the, the bank, they would uh, pay uh, the rental value uh, to the government instead. So a debt cancellation would have to be mm. uh, hand in hand with a fiscal policy if you don't want to create a new uh, enormous ruling right. class. Right, so it's like, so, so you're really talking like social housing, aren't you? Which, I mean, where there are countries which are quite capitalist in their nature, like Singapore, which are predominantly social housing, in fact. Yes. So it's, how does that yes. differ from, uh, it, it seems quite drastic though, Michael, because I mean, it basically... Yes, it but we're in a drastic, the alternative is drastic. Yeah. We're in a drastic situation today. Look at the polarization. Look at the people who are going to be put out in the street. Look at the unemployment. Look at the uh, austerity that you're uh, having as a result of debt deflation from America to Europe. Uh, we're in a, a, a drastic situation, and any solution ha uh, cannot be marginal. It has to be structural, and any structural solution is drastic. But, but under your arrangement, anybody who has loaned out money is going gonna, is gonna to lose that money. That's correct. That's correct. And, and that is not just necessarily going to be banks. 
but but you but yeah, your right. point is it's always going to be someone pretty wealthy. Take, no, take pension funds for yeah. instance. Uh, what do you do about pension funds? The the pension uh, obligations would be taken over by government, and the government would pay the pensions out of the uh, uh, the, the rent tax that it gets from the money that w- previously was. Uh, financialized and paid to the banks as interest instead of paid to the government as rents, which is what Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and the whole 19th century of classical economists were pushing for. So we'll, we'll go to Steve's approach in just a second. Does this fix mm. this problem, though, uh, Michael, which is I think is the real problem in the United States right now? I'm looking at numbers from the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics, permanent jobs lost in the United States. Now, this is figures to September, now totaling over 4 million. Of course, it was much worse than that. It's bounced back a bit. But that has got to be the the biggest issue. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking, even if you cancel debt, is, is that going to bring those jobs back? You cannot bring them back without canceling the debt. Let's put them that mm. way. Because if, uh, if you leave the restaurants uh, owing the uh, rent debts, if you leave the businesses owing the rent and tax debts when they don't have any. And if you leave the the states and localities, New York City is broke. The transport system is broke. The transport system is going to have, it doesn't have the money now, uh, the subways, to to fix the signals that are dating from the 1940s, and uh, the trains don't run. Uh, There's an almost complete uh, breakdown. Unless you write down the state and local debt or uh, somehow uh, uh, pay it off, or fund it with a property tax, uh, you're going to have a close down of the state and local infrastructure. And without a transport, nobody can get to work uh, to get a job. So the, the, we're in a systemic crisis that is uh, very close to paralysis that looks like it's going to be peaking around uh, March. But could it be, could those debts be paid back with government money rather than saying to the people who are issuing the debt, or is that part and parcel of it? You want to change the system. So to do that, you've got to they've got to feel the hurt or could you or could the government just step in and say well okay we are going to pay you the money to uh, uh, to cancel out their debt i think that's getting pretty close to your idea actually isn't it steve that's more your approach yeah mine mine is i mean i agree with michael about the structural issues and the inequality um but i'm trying to get something which actually might might get through politically uh, as well and one reason I had, like the last time I wrote on the debt jubilee was about 10 years ago. And the reason I haven't bothered writing about it since is I thought it had a snowflakes chance in hell of actually happening. You know, it's one of the, one of the frustrations of being somebody like Michael or myself is you're, you're given an accurate analysis of capitalism. You're putting forward ideas that might make it less rentier dominated and more actually capitalist, which is, as Michael's point a moment ago, uh, Ricardo and Smith were both trying to stop the rentier class taking over capitalism. We've let them do so uh, by letting the finance sector grow uh, without restraint. But I'm still trying to say, well, let's get something which is politically feasible and uh, within that context. And that would be let's abolish the debt, but not reduce the money supply at the same time. Because part, part, part and parcel of the whole endogenous money vision is that when you eliminate debt, you also eliminate money. Because if you reduce the asset side of the banking sector, you, uh, you reduce the liability side as well. The assets are the debts, sure, that's why we want to get down, but the liabilities are the money we've had in our bank accounts. And if you wipe out one, you wipe out the other. So my idea was to give a, an equal amount of government-created money to everybody, so if it gets the same per capita amount, and then those that are in debt have to pay their debt down. Now, of course, that's going to be complicated by all the debt covenants that exist and so on. But some scheme by which the debt was either paid down or offset for those who had debts, the people with debtors who benefited. But people always came back to me saying, what about people who didn't speculate, didn't gamble? And of course, that includes me. Um, and the idea was, well, let's make a per capita to everybody. And those that don't have debt get a cash injection. And then with the cash injection, uh, when I was looking at this, this was back in the days when the economy had come out of the deepest part of the whole of the uh, financial crisis in 2007. So by 2010, 2011. Um, so you didn't necessarily want that money to be spent on goods and services, but you could say, well, we want to reduce corporate debt as well. And in the United States right now, corporate debt and household debt are pretty much equal. Uh, so I want to get corporate debt down as well, as well as changing the, the bias between debt and equity in the corporate system. So the proposal was that people who, were, who got a cash injection who weren't in debt 
would have to use that money to buy newly issued corporate shares, which would have to be used to pay corporate debt down and reduce the, de- the corporate debt ratio as well as the household debt ratio. But it would be a big amount of money, wouldn't it? So it would be a big broadening of the, the money supply. It wouldn't change the money supply one cent. But it would change what the money supply is backed by. Right. So at the moment, if you look at the American economy, it's roughly a $20 trillion economy. It's roughly got $20 trillion worth of cash in it. The rate of turnover of money has declined so much that it's pretty much one for one. Uh, so what you do is you change that being from being credit-based, where like at the, the, the moment something the order of $18 trillion of that is, is debt-based money, uh, make that, re- reduce that to, say, $5 trillion, and you'd be injecting in $13 trillion worth of, of fiat money to cancel $13 trillion worth of credit money, leaving you with exactly the same amount of money in the economy, but a far lower debt level. So the ECB is saying the amount of bad debt that they've got uh, this year could reach 1.4 trillion euros. That's the bad debt. And obviously, they're looking at, you know, how do they uh, save the banks again for that uh, for that bad mm. debt without thinking about those poor people who've actually got that bad debt. There's lives sitting behind that. And, they're, they're, you know, at times like this, people are losing money through no fault of their own. So, and they're the people who've taken out loans that have turned bad. Then there's all the people who would have taken out loans but have been refused the loans by the bank because the banks see them as being too risky because they know their businesses are going to fail. So we're talking trillions and trillions just within within Europe and around the world. Uh, the, this would be a massive amount of money that would need be needed to, to to cancel out debt, and it's just got that much worse this year, of course. But but it's easy to do. The amount the amount is going to be uh, much greater next year and much greater the year after that mm-hmm. because of accruals uh, of interest. Uh, and it's it's going to uh, yeah you keep you talk about bad debt that's the propaganda word why don't you say bad savings bad loan <laughs> uh, uh, when you say bad debt you put all the blame on the debtors the fact is it's the ba- the banking system has become dysfunctional uh, the debts cannot be paid no economy can pay ever pay off all the debts because of the exponential growth of debt uh, is being faster than the S-shaped curve of the economy. So no matter what, we're going to uh, have a rising and rising and soaring, exponentially soaring volume of debts that can't be paid. The, uh, if, if you say they're bad loans, uh, the, the, the banks should be uh, done what you did in Germany in 1948, the, the economic miracle. Uh, you, make, you start all over again. You, you cancel the debts and the savings, uh, except for you know basic ba- bank balances uh, of everybody, so I, they have enough to get by. And uh, uh, you, you just sort of wipe out the whole financial overgrowth. Because if you don't do that, then the economy cannot get out of the debt deflation that we're in and cannot recover. But how do you stop it happening again? Once you've done that, how do you stop it repeating itself? You don't. Of course, it'll repeat itself. Mm, well, hang on, Rocco. You're being pretty radical about the changes there. So let's do as radical about policies about the finance sector as well. It's natural for people to run into debt. Uh, the idea is to uh, a good uh, financial system would have had uh, 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 productive credit, credit to actually enable people, uh, the economy, to produce more and earn enough mm. to carry the debt. But the financial system has not... Uh, uh, focused on productive loans, it's focused on loans to increase uh, asset prices. Uh, banks lend against uh, uh, real estate and stocks and bonds already in place, not to really help the economy grow. So all you have is uh, a financial overgrowth of overhead. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had, the, as, as well as like trying to make up for the previous sin of accumulating far too much debt, private sector debt, uh, my, my idea for modern debt jubilee would say, let's stop it happening again by changing what the finance sector can do because the whole huge part of the problem is we've trusted the finance sector now again in michael's terminology that's trusting a parasite to be really good to the host garbage uh, so the, the finance sector as marx once said is a, is a great servant and a terrible master so we need to turn it back to the stage where it's a servant once more and servants get told by the master what they can do so my two proposals fundamentally uh, proposals to control the, the, what the banking sector lended for was just 
stop it lending for asset speculation and force it to lend for productive investment. One I called the pill, which used to be very funny. People don't know what the pill is anymore, it seems. But that's property income limited leverage. You would say to banks, the current banks pretend that they're lending on the basis of the income of the borrower. And therefore, if you've got a high income, you can borrow a large amount than a small amount of, uh, a small person can. Of course, they've been pushing that level up over time. You used to be able to borrow 70% Again, uh, then you borrow 90%, now 95%. So they've been gearing it up on the basis of a fictional measure of your income anyway. My idea was to say, let's limit the amount that banks can lend to some multiple of the income earning capacity of the property being purchased. And we have imputed rented series throughout the world. People actually calculate what rent would be earned by an owner-occupied property if it was on the rental market rather than owner-occupied. So we already have the stats to say what this could be. And I would, my, my rule of thumb was to say, let's limit the amount of lending to 10 times the annual income of the property being uh, purchased. So in that case, like if you look at a property which was um, like where I used to live in, in London, um, the income earning potential of that place was 12 times my rent, which is £180,000 uh, pounds total, £15,000 times 12. I would limit it to... Um, 10 times that rental income um, with 15,000, that'd be 180,000 pounds. That's all you could borrow to buy the place. Now, at the moment, if you and I were competing over that property to buy it, the one of us that got the bigger loan would win. But if you said it was based on, the, the, neither of us could borrow more than 180,000 pounds, and that would be stated on the contract of sale and on all the advertisements, then the one of us would win, win, the, win the contest with one that saved more money. So rather than having a negative, positive amplifying feedback between uh, house prices and leverage, you'd have a dampening effect, and that's mm. that's to tame the property but market. But what, yeah, what do you do about mm. uh, uh, equities, though? Which Because we've the crazy thing we've seen this year, obviously, is the fact that mm. the share prices mm. have been hitting uh, uh, new highs. We've had you know all this bullshit about the the wealth effect that it's all going to trickle down, mm. uh, and you know the counter argument is that oh well you know but but everyone wins because uh, because the you know their pensions are tied up in it. Well, uh, some mm. figures in the UK pension funds account for 2.4% of all the shares that are held in the UK. Uh, more than half of uh, UK shares are actually held by people who aren't even in the country. 13.5% are owned by UK individuals. Uh, so, uh, and, and private non-financial companies own 2.6%, which is more than pension funds hold. So, uh, I mean, this just adds to the to the argument doesn't it it's the, it's the top yeah well it's actually not the top even 10 percent. we can put in the number of individuals it's actually the uh, the top 13 and a half percent who are the shareholders in the uk no no you don't mean 13 it's been 0.013 well actually no it's 13 and a half percent of shares are owned by yeah being uk individuals so do you have a tiny fraction of the population so they've, they've benefited both from the um um, the government spending is actually benefiting them because it's driving up share prices. Quantitative easing has had that effect. So we're doing completely the wrong thing. We're, we're, we're making capitalism more unequal than it would be on, on its own merit, which is pretty damn bad to begin with. Mm. So my idea on, on the shares is what I call Jubilee shares. And the idea there was that when a share is first issued by a company, and therefore when you buy it, you're buying the share off the company, yep. then that share lasts just like a normal share does. Yep. Gets dividends, lasts indefinitely. As soon as you sell it, or maybe after maybe one or two sales, maybe at least we might allow that, it becomes a jubilee share, and at that point it has a life of 50 years, after which it terminates. Yeah, and we've talked so about this idea, before, of course, and I had the, yeah. had the other idea was actually, no, you, you sell it back to the company when you've, uh, you know... Yeah, which you could also do, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, the, the, the idea is to, is to not, not eliminate the secondary share market because you want some inverted commas price discovery to go on there, mm. but tr to trivialise it compared to the initial public offering asset, the, the primary market, which is... That's the mythology. Again, there's like you said, the people say we can't touch shares because, you know, pension funds own so much. How much do they own? Less than 2%. It's a bullshit argument. Equally, the same thing applies on, on, the, on the share market discovery side of things. Uh, the, the, rather than, you, rather than, well, rather than the, raising capital, rather, rather than raising capital, you're, you're financing massive amounts of speculation, which, again, is all covered by levered money yeah. uh, with, more, with more margin debt. So make it such that the, we make... We, we make the stock market do what it pretends to do, which is raise yeah. capital. 
and therefore the primary market becomes dominant, the secondary becomes trivial, and then you'd have a tamed financial yeah. sector. Of course, again, the chance of that is again a, a snowflake. Yeah. Well, that, then you are giving money to uh, to Michael. Your your point. I, I, I saw you on an interview recently where you were talking about the difference between industrial capitalism and finance capitalism, and that's what we need. We need uh, share investments to to fund industrial capitalism, not finance capitalism. Well, Stephen, Steve's uh, suggestion is. Uh, Good to the extent that it replaces debt with equity. And of course, mm. if you replace debt with equity, then the money you owe is automatically reflected by your ability to pay. But I want to get back to what Steve began this whole discussion with, and that's talking about real estate. This, uh, what he's suggesting uh, uh, of rules for bank lending against real estate is exactly what uh, uh, existed in the United States from uh, 1945 to the next 20 years. Uh, any uh, Anyone could go into a bank and ask for a mortgage. The banks were limited they were to uh, the amount of money they could lend for real estate. It was limited to the more debt service could not absorb more than uh, 25% of your income. And that 25% of income would be in the form of the self-amortizing 30-year mortgage. Uh, so what that did was limit the amount of real estate lending uh, throughout the country. Uh, to uh, the amount that uh, anybody could afford, and housing prices were low. Well, the banks fought against this. They lobbied against it, and uh, now, instead of being uh, the limit of 25% of your income, the government, uh, Federal Housing Authority, guarantees uh, mortgages, uh, government guarantee for mortgages, up to 43% of your income. Uh, and uh, they, uh, the banks can uh, fiddle by saying, okay, we won't have to pay any uh, amortization, so you won't uh, own your house in 30 years. Uh, you won't have repaid any of your debt at all. You'll just be paying the uh, it's an interest-only lo- loan, and mm. you don't have to make any down payment. Uh, after World War II, you had to make 20 or 30 percent of the price of the down payment. So the banks have uh, added; they've leveraged uh, the whole market because banks don't ever want the loans to be repaid. They want the loans to grow and grow. And that's what makes, ultimately, the debts impossible to be repaid. So the banks and financial system have lobbied for a system that must mathematically collapse. That's what Steve and I are talking about. It collapse the way it's set up. So when when did this idea of risk disappear from all of this? Because logic would tell you, wouldn't it, that a bank... There never was. Uh, Wait a minute. Don't fall for the propaganda. There never was any risk. Banks don't take risks. They, uh, they have collateral. Uh, uh, the banks gain when, when you can't pay, the bank gets to grab your property. Uh, uh, the risk is all on the part of the borrower, not the lender. This is just Chicago school propaganda. They don't take risk. That's why they're rich and the debtors aren't. But if we got to a situation over. where we, yeah. if we, if if we got to a situation where we we said, well, okay, when when debt levels get so high, uh, we will we will have some sort of debt moratorium, and people come to expect it, then they're going to be will be become isn't that going to actually grow risk even more? You know, we'll get to the stage where people go, well, if if it's going to be paid back, who cares? No, here's the following reason. Most people's debts are not as a result of borrowing. Most people's debts are accrual. Uh, they, they just grow by leaving them in place and grow and grow and grow. Uh, and the, the bulk of debt for, uh, for real estate, for corporations, are just accrued interest on the debts that mount up and mount up. That's how the, uh, the financial sector essentially uh, gains uh, money in their sleep. They don't make new loans. They just gain the money in the sleep and they leave it. Uh, they recycle it and recycle it into more and more lending at an exponential rate because any interest rate is a doubling time. Uh, and the 30, uh, 29%, you know, for the credit card uh, distress rates, uh, that doubles in less than three years. So uh, uh, you, you don't want to pick up their Orwellian rhetoric. You have to pierce the rhetorical shell and uh, talk about reality. Just one final point then, because we are running out of time now. But uh, you you mentioned earlier about how in Germany they were uh, paying uh, basically furloughing workers, paying 80 percent of what would have been their salary if they'd been working. It was actually the same in uh, same in the UK. In fact, still is. And and in Australia, many other parts of the world, Australia, the United States didn't go down that road. For, for whatever reason, it obviously cost the government too much money to do that. But it's, uh, I mean, does, does, does this become a, I mean, you, you can take this on f- 
first, Steve, but is this perhaps the beginning of a of proof of the idea of a, of a, uh, a universal basic income? The fact that, you know, the government is paying money with, with money that the government can, in effect, create by overspending its budget. Uh, and, and you know, is that, what will that do to debt? Will that reduce the, 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 this, this accumulated debt? Because it, it will if you give everybody a basic income of $1 million a year, uh, <laughs> $2 million a year, because that's how fast the debts will grow. They grow to infinity. Yeah. Are you willing to pay everybody an infinity basic income to pay to the one percent of creditors at the top of the yeah, scale? That's yeah, give me a million a year, and then I'd get a very big, ha- an, an even bigger house, which would well, it would cost a lot, but it'd be the same size. As, the borrowing which would be the same size that has I mean yeah, now. I mean, I, so, your point, Steve, on that? Well, I, I, it's, it, I think, in one sense, it is a proof that UBI can can be done because we, we, we had all these, you know, this can never be done, this is not a possible, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then a crisis happens, and wang, they throw the neoclassical textbooks out the window, which is where they bloody well belong, um, as long as they don't kill a homeless person on the way down, and and then they they go to panic response so the capitalism won't fail on their watch and they do everything they say isn't possible. So for example you mentioned earlier the Central Bank of England directly paying for the Treasury's furlough scheme rather than issuing mm. bonds to cover it. We're told that can't be Only done that can't time. be done bang it was done during the crisis. Uh, and the same mm. thing for the furlough itself as a form of universal basic income. And again that couldn't be done until it was necessary in a crisis and then it's done as a mechanical thing fundamentally. So the trouble is we try to they get the, the, the powers that be and mainstream economists in particular who don't like this sort of stuff at all but also politically conservative types want to unlearn these lessons after the crisis I often think of the, the story of Rosie the Riveter remember that story during the Second World War uh, where the American government was trying to encourage women to come out and work uh, in the factories when the men were off in, in, the, in the armed forces Rosie the Riveter to sell the idea of women making all the, the weapons the men would use in the war and then when the war was over and the men were back, what do they do? Encourage women to become housekeepers. Um, so you, you have an attempt to manipulate public thinking and public opinion and unlearn lessons which were learned during a period of crisis. I would like to hang on to the lesson that, yes, a UBI By, by the way, on that Bank of England thing, I think that was only a temporary measure. They allowed them to go uh, into debt with the uh, just because they couldn't issue the bonds quick enough. I don't. I don't think the intention was that they would ever allow a, a, an overdraft to sit there. It was no. Yeah, but the it could be done. Absolutely. You know, it's just the so, so Michael, it seems like yeah, your, your point. You know, your point. You don't agree that uh, universal basic income would be a, a step forward. No, I think it's a good idea. I'm just saying that if uh, uh, more, if more and more income is going to be paid for debt service, then more and more of the basic income is going to be paid. Uh, to the 1% or the 10% of the creditor class. Do you really want that to happen? Because it's going, uh, if it were only to pay uh, for cons- uh, basic needs, then a basic income would be fine. But what are you going to do about the fact that debt is uh, eating more and more and more into disposable personal mm. income? Uh, you, uh, you have to figure out some way of writing down or limiting the existing debt. And if you do basic income right now, then so many people have run up arrears that uh, they're not. Uh, they're just going to be vehicles to uh, pay the pay the, the fire sector. But do we care about the top? If the top one percent have got themselves in, heavily into debt, uh, and you know, we, we a universal basic income is only going to take a tiny dent, an insignificant dent out of that. Do we care about how much debt's been carried by the top one percent? No, we care about the savings of the one percent yeah. that hold the rest of the economy in debt. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it, what's one fascinating thing that's happening right now in the data is that the household sector, like an individual, of course, of having to you know, borrow money as best they can to survive the impact of the. Uh, the coronavirus on their income stream. But when you look at the aggregate level, it's all turning up in the corporate sector as an increase in corporate debt. To give you an idea, in the uh, in 20, beginning of 2020, the level of uh, corporate debt was, hang on, I've got to go fast forward here, okay, was 70, 74.9% of GDP. Um, it was 755 in February, seventy six point six in in uh, in in March, seventy eight percent 
in April. So we've had this enormous increase in debt uh, of the corporate sector. And what's really going on there, I think, is people are simply dipping into their lines of credit, their overdrafts, to, av- to avoid mm. shutting their doors. So I think when, when, this, when we get through this, yes, there's going to be lots of people evicted from their houses as well. The rent, the rent, uh, the, the rent holiday they were given and the mortgage holidays are going to come back and bite them because it was only a delay. It wasn't writing off as it should have been during the crisis. Uh, we're also going to have a large level of corporate failures. So I expect we're going to see uh, the, the first ever economic crisis without a boom preceding it. So, yeah, it's an inter- there's an interesting thing there, isn't it? Because we're seeing in the UK so many, and again, it's the same around the world, but I think the UK has got it particularly bad. So many retail chains that are disappearing now, uh, there's not going to be many left, and being put up for fire sales. So they've they've accrued massive debts. Those debts are going to have to be written off. The business gets gets sold off at a, at a, a, a very, very low rate or zero. Uh, someone else comes along, isn't carrying that that debt burden, can undercut its competition because it's because it's it's set up for a song. The carpet bag yeah. is the back again. Yeah, are you seeing that sort of thing happening in in the U.S., Michael? Yes, that's exactly uh, what's happening. You're going to have the very large companies uh, uh, benefiting as the small mom and pop stores go out of business. So you're going to have restaurant mm. chains surviving, but not small restaurants. Uh, you're going to have Amazon uh, do uh, have an enormous gain. That's why Amazon stock has been rising so much, uh, because yeah. you have uh, the small stores going out of business as people are not going shopping. So you're going to have a huge concentration of wealth, and we're turning into an oligarchy. Uh, and yeah. uh, what Steve just said, that uh, the first uh, uh, depression was out of boom, uh, he's absolutely right. And people should realize that we're still in the Obama depression that began in 2009 when Obama said, I'm going to pay my campaign backers, the banks, and I'm going to uh, kick uh, t- uh, 10 million families out. Uh, I'm going to cause a depression because I'm working for the 1%. And he invited them to the White House and he said, I'm the only guy standing between you and the mob with pitchforks, namely the people who voted for him. And uh, we're still in the depression from Obama's uh, refusal to write down the real estate debts to the realistic value of real estate. And uh, Sheila Baer of the FDIC said uh, uh, crooked banks like Citibanks that were mismanaged, hopelessly corrupt, should have gone under, but it was all about the bondholders. And uh, Obama chose to bail out the bondholders instead of the people. And we're still at, uh, this was the start of fascism in the United States, and we're still in it. And uh, uh, we cannot get out of it until you undo the damage that Obama did. Do you know what, Michael? I really wish you'd uh, you'd come out and say what you think. It's uh, <laughs> it's the, those pitchforks, by the way. I mean, I think those pitchforks are coming just as soon as we're told we're allowed out of the house. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe they're running scared the fact that they think that uh, the pitchforks are coming, so they'll tell us we've all got to lock down uh, for a good year or so. It's been uh, fascinating talking to both of you. It's been fun as well. We need Michael. We need to get you on again sometime soon. But uh, thanks for your time today. Great, good to be here. And that's it. We do this every week, me and Steve Keen. If you uh, want to listen, then you need to uh, become a subscriber at debunkingeconomics.com or become a supporter of Steve Keen on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Prof Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dubby. Thanks for joining us today. Hopefully catch you again next week. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.